Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, York Regional Police have taken down a major organized crime family. At a rally last night, Donald Trump got the crowd chanting, send her back. What does that do for unity? And everyone is talking about the face aging app. Is it a good idea? Where does your information go? We tell you. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. York Regional Police have taken down major crime uh, uh, players in uh, that region. Uh, they've revealed the details on a massive bus of an alleged uh, traditional organized crime network that netted more than $35 million in cash and assets. Uh, police said the crime family known as the Figlio Manis have allegedly been operating for more than three decades in Italy, Vaughan, and across the GTA, laundering millions of dollars. Uh, the police chief says we needed to focus on taking down criminal organization by attacking the finances and the laundering of dirty money and large profits from proceeds of crime that have built these organizations over decades and allowed them to uh, thrive. York police have detected a spike in violent crime targeting both people and property in 2017 uh, and that violence uh, with associations uh, through traditional organized crime, uh, which include murder, drive-by shootings, arsons, etc. Uh, York police have created a permanent organized task force in this 18-month project. Last weekend, over the course of three days, police executed 48 search warrants on businesses, cafes, and residences in Vaughan and the greater Toronto area. Nine arrests made, including the major players of the alleged crime group and its boss. Uh, Police said 27 homes were seized, approximately $24 million in value. High-end cars, including five Ferraris, along with uh, along one worth, uh, along with one worth eight hundred thousand dollars for a total of three point five million in cars. Police also seized gaming machines, ATM machines, a million in cash, another million in jewelry, including Rolex watches, also taken. Uh, as I mentioned, thirty-five million dollars seized in this operation. To talk more about all of this, James Dubrow is with us, well-known longtime crime writer and researcher, and specialist in organized crime. He is with us now. James, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Your thoughts on all of this? Well, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I agree with almost everything you just said about the uh, enormity of it, but uh, I hate to say it, this this family is just one medium-sized mafia and drang of cell operating in, in Ontario with connections in Italy, and the amount of money uh, and, and the scope of the operations is somewhat limited. It's not a drug operation. It's not a, uh, which is a lot of the Andrangheta families are involved in fentanyl and heroin and cocaine. Major, you know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Still, it's impressive because the police went after, uh, this essentially is an organized crime case based on the the organization of the family and, and their money, where the money went, how it was laundered. So they're going after the, the money, which is what hurts organized crime the most. And this family is one of uh, a dozen or 18 Andrangheta cell families operating in the GTA. So it's, you know, and they're essentially involved in gambling operations and through these cafes and related activities such as arsons and loan sharking and enforcement. But is that uh, is that where the term old time organized crime came into this? The, the fact that there wasn't as much drug or there isn't drug uh, involvement no, in this? No, no. Uh, Drugs have been going on for some time. What they mean by traditional is that it isn't uh, the bikers or it isn't uh, the Russian mafia or it isn't 
Asian organized crime or any of the many other groups operating right. in, in, in Ontario. And, and this particular group, well, it's been around maybe, you know, Bigly Amini has been around for a while, but and he has family members in, in, in uh, Soderno and Calabria still that he operates with, although I don't think they're running any of this. It really is not small time, but mid-level stuff, you know? I mean, the gambling things in the cafes were quasi-legal. The money laundering, of course, isn't. Um, the uh, Obviously, they, they've done hundreds of hours of wiretaps and uh, have got an enormous amount of material. A lot will come out of this, but I don't think we've seen the major crimes yet. I mean, we're, they're not talking murders. There's been a lot of murders in the York region of mafia people. There's been a lot of infighting between the various mafia cells, but this isn't about that. There's been the tow truck situation. This isn't involving that. There's been the Rizzuto family fallout of his death two years ago and, and the fallout in mafia. This isn't about that either. So I would say, you know, they hyped it up a bit, but it really is a good operation. Uh, that being said, uh, would you characterize this as a drop in the bucket? You, you, you uh, obviously, when the layman reads this, they think, "My goodness, this this seems huge." But to you, this is mid-level stuff. Yeah, well, I've been watching this for over forty years. Uh, I would say. no, but I, 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 I'm and the reason I'm referencing that is simply that most people probably don't realize how big this is. Yeah, well, it's big, but you know, there are just so many. And Drangada and other crime families operating in in the in Ontario. Just take Ontario, let alone Quebec and British Columbia. I mean, just to give you another example, um, more recently in in uh, British Columbia, they charged uh, a few Asian crime people from the big circle gangs and, and connected mm-hmm. to them with hundreds of millions of dollars of money laundering. Here we're talking about seizing thirty five million dollars in assets, that's including twenty seven homes, and only a million dollars in cash. Uh, and I don't know how much is involved in the money laundering. They haven't said yet, but I, we'll find out. But I doubt if it's more than the $35 million figure. So we're talking a drop in the bucket, I'm afraid to say. I hate to use that term, yep. but yes. But but the fact that the police have focused on this one group and, and focused on their finances and focused, they even arrested some of the accountants and bookkeepers, including a woman who was obviously doing some bookkeeping, uh, that is important. Um, that, that they're going after the money and the criminal organization. So why they, this they, fan... They don't, they don't often, often go after the an Andrangheta cell in Ontario as a criminal organization. They usually go after specific murders or, you know, violence, and they'll go after someone for, you know, a hitman or for the family doing a killing, but they don't actually go after the family. And usually the bosses get off that way. Why, why this family this time, then? Uh, is this in association with the violence or the power struggle that is going on behind the scenes? I think it has to do with the arsons in the cafes over the last few years. There's been a few, uh, and that's partly intimidation and partly uh, internal rivalries. I think more intimidation in this case. And that probably, you know, they, they obviously have a task force on this. As, as one of the cops said, that they've this is just one of the families in the area. They've, they said that Woodbridge and Vaughan is the heart of the Indrangheta cells in Ontario and that they're going to be going after others. This would affect others, but it's really just after this one group, one family, and which is great if they succeed in court. Uh, but um, it's going to take many years of these very targeted, intense operations. Look at all the police they use on that and the resources they brought to bear. One of the most important things is they they brought in Revenue Canada. Now, most mafia people fear the Canada Revenue Agency more than anything else. They don't want their money taken. 
especially by CRA. So the fact that they brought in investigators from the Canada Revenue Service means that they'll be able to seize that money, which hurts the criminal family more than anything, more than jail time. Uh, there's been lots of chatter of late. Uh, you were talking about money laundering and uh, the Asian gangs and in, in the, yeah. the fentanyl issue in, in British Columbia and such. Uh, I remember talking mm-hmm. to our investigative reporters out there who've done some in, 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 uh, investigative reporting on that, and they said, you know, it, it's great that everybody's focusing on British Columbia, but this is nothing compared to Ontario. Perhaps not nothing, but it's just as bad, if not worse, <laughs> in Ontario. I think BC's like third uh, from following Quebec and, and Ontario. Uh, talk a little bit more about that and money laundering and uh, exactly how prevalent this issue is in the province. Well, I don't know if I'd say that that it's small compared to Ontario and and Quebec. I would say that money laundering is going throughout the country, throughout North America. Any organized crime activity, most organized crime, the money has to be laundered, whether it's through casinos or real estate, often through real estate transactions. Yeah, I agree that most do, that there's a huge amount of money laundering going through Ontario, particularly through real estate. It's been easier in British Columbia because the way the prices keep going up and how high they are, uh, and and the huge amount of right. Asian organized crime presence since over a hundred years in in British Columbia. So it's a, it's a whole different situation, and a lot of money is coming from China. A lot of criminal and money is coming from China itself and Hong Kong. But we 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 have. A, a, <laughs> Hundreds of millions of dollars being laundered through Ontario, no question about it. We we really need a, a royal commission, federal one, but for certainly an Ontario one, to look at money laundering and organized crime activities in this province. We haven't had that as long as I can remember. I've been looking at the stuff for 45 years. There's only been one royal commission in Ontario, and that was in the 70s, about the construction industry. There's another industry that's, you know, we talked about tow trucks uh, industry, the construction industry is another one that's, you know, got a lot of organized crime elements and a lot of money is laundered through that, So, as well as real estate and casinos, through casinos. And in this particular case today, in the York region, they, they actually followed people to casinos where they laundered the money. So they were following them. You know, they followed it through for 18 months. They did a pretty good job, I would say, to see if they win in court. But uh, you're right, Quebec and Ontario has hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars being laundered all the time. And that's what organized crime has to do with its money. Uh, you talked about casinos and, and laundering money through those. Uh, it wasn't that long ago when everybody wanted a casino. The big mad dash up here was to, right. uh, you know, have a casino and that, that, that. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. Of course, we find out that the situation in British Columbia and their casinos involved in the extensive money laundering that's going in, uh, going on out there. Where does that leave casinos? Is this a business that government should be in? Well, that's a very hard thing to say because. People are going to gamble anyway. And yeah. Why, why shouldn't the government make money? It's the same argument about pot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I noticed some organized crime families are trying to get legal licenses to pot, but that's another story, pot shops. Uh, the fact is they just need more investigators looking suspiciously at all the money cash that comes in, but very hard to do with casinos. Uh, I don't think you want to say the government shouldn't be involved in it. I, probably there should be more of the enforcement and investigatory arm, got, arm of the government's involved in, in uh casinos. They have, obviously, a squad, uh, and the OPP has one here in Ontario, but uh, they probably need more money and manpower to really, just too much going on, you know, and they don't really follow the cash, or they try to, if it's very suspicious. You know, speaking of this family that was arrested today, I'm not sure they laundered their money that well, because they were talking about all these Ferraris, C's, mm. fancy homes, 
that's not very effective laundering laundered money if you buy an expensive home and a Ferrari it's kind of putting a spotlight on yourself yeah yeah and, what and you, you do is keep it out of your keep yeah. it out you got to live that's why you're laundering it. <laughs> exactly. One of yeah. the best crime bosses in my lifetime in Ontario was old Giacomo Lupino. He lived in a lower middle class, a middle class house in, in outside of Hamilton. Mm. He, not very, he dressed like a bum. He was out in the backyard putting his laundry on a, uh, what do you, you know, a, a line, yeah. he was not, yeah, he was not flashy. He didn't have big cars, a mansion. When you have a mansion and expensive cars, it's it's really like drawing attention to yourself. So the old, real old-time mafia wouldn't do that. They would simply uh, live humbly, look humble, you know, and put their laundry in the clothesline, as Giacomo Lupino did, and quietly run everything. <laughs> what and, will... and get away with it, and get away with it. He got away with it all this life. He died as an old man in bed. What will come of these arrests? Will there? Will the, uh, you mentioned the violence and such, and the power star struggles? Will this create more of a power struggle? What what happens? Uh, what will come of these arrests? Do you think? Well, that's that's interesting. You should mention that it, it will create a vacuum in some of those gambling things, but not much of a vacuum. Besides, these the uh, Angelo and, and the others will be out on bail. They'll be challenging it in court, which is going to take years. It might have an impact on some of the other mafia cells involved in the gambling. But as I say, there's Andrangheta cells involved in all sorts of things. This is directly tied in with his Figlianini's family in uh, uh, Soderno in Calabria. But but only because he has family members there, not that they're running it out of Italy. Uh, and the Andrangheta isn't one group. It's many, many, many cells all over the world. Italy has many cells. Ontario has 12 to 18 cells. Some new, some old. The old. One of the oldest ones I know is the Camisos. They've been around since uh, the 60s, 70s, 70s. And Cosa Camiso is in his mid-70s now, is still one of the most prominent Andrangheta bosses in Ontario. He was just arrested a couple of weeks ago for allegedly bribing someone for a marijuana, legal marijuana license in the city hall. Uh, hmm. That guy went to jail for attempted murders and conspiracy murders and drug trafficking. In the 80s, and it's been a, it was the head of the ruling commission of the Andrangheta, and he's still around. He's one of the most prominent. It's very hard to get these guys. Hmm. You know? James Dubrow has been with us, award-winning crime writer of many books, and of course, a long-time researcher on the t- on the topic of organized crime. Talking about York Regional Police have taken down a major family uh, and seized about 35 million dollars in assets. James, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly been talking at length on the show in in regard to uh, to the last few days and and what has happened in regard to uh, U.S. President Donald Trump uh, tweeting about uh, two uh, uh, very social Democrats who have uh, been come to known as the squad who are outspoken and, of course, the Democratic Party in the process of choosing a leader. So whenever that happens, you get all, uh, you know, various... uh, uh, views of the party all coming together and, and trying to, you know, pick a platform, pick policy, and uh, eventually choose a winner who will go on to to lead the party. Uh, these four are very uh, outspoken, very much on the left, and have, have drawn a lot of attention of late, including that of Donald Trump. 
who, who basically said uh, with a series of tweets earlier on in the week, uh, basically these people should go back to where they came from and uh, fix that and then come back and, and tell everybody uh, how it's done. The issue here is all four are American. One is uh, all four are American. Three were born here. Uh, one was a uh, Somali refugee. And at a rally last night in North Carolina, uh, Trump continued on this uh, angle of uh, of these four and, and sending them back to where they uh, came from and such. And uh, much like we heard during uh, the first presidential campaign with Hillary Clinton, uh, with Hillary Clinton and e- emails and such, uh, the crowd started chanting, uh, chanting, lock her up, lock her up. Well, now the chants have moved to send her back, send her back. And referring to uh, the Democratic uh, Congresswoman from Minnesota, who is a Somali immigrant, came here, I believe, at about age 12, or sorry, to America at about age 12. So, uh, you know, lock her up's one thing. We sort of rolled our eyes when we saw that happen. Again, politics aside, whether you're left on the right or in the center or wherever the heck you are, uh, is this the sort of behavior we expect from leaders who are supposed to be uniting people, uh, not creating conflict, not creating divisiveness? Uh, that all leads to war. So uh, at the end of the day, um, I think this is less about politics and more about decorum and how far is America willing to go uh, before they say enough is enough? And mind you, we have been saying that since, <laughs> since the election. Um, many have said uh, any other leader who has behaved similar to what Donald Trump has would have been booted out long ago. Uh, but unfortunately, um, uh, for Teflon Don, nothing just seems to stick. Is this any different? Is there any reason to believe... Uh, the outcome will be any different here. Let's bring in Ryan Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Will send her back be the mantra of the next election uh, campaign, like Locker Up was for the last one? Uh, I think if, if that turns out to be the case, then uh, Trump is going to be in a very difficult position. I think that, uh, as is probably obvious to everyone, uh, whatever his ultimate intentions, he is definitely playing with fire. I think that he was playing with xenophobic and racist sentiments. And once you start unleashing that, it's difficult to control it. Um, I don't necessarily think it makes sense to analyze every aspect of Donald Trump's tweets from a perspective of you know what's his ultimate strategy. I think a lot of it is just off the cuff. But I do think there is a kind of element of strategy here. Um, what he is, seems to be trying to do is to get the Democratic Party to identify and embrace the squad that you mentioned. Yeah. Because the, the prelude to all these tweets was increasing divisions between the Nancy Pelosi wing of the party, the, the more moderate wing, uh, the House Speaker, of course, the, the leader of the, uh, uh, the party in the House of Representatives, and the members of the squad, which had kind of coalesced around the specific issue of border funding, where uh, the the members of the squad had criticized Nancy Pelosi for supporting uh, a Trump administration-led bill for increased border funding that, from their perspective, simply didn't provide adequate uh, protections for people who were being detained. Um, so, perhaps strangely, what Trump was doing in this intervention, it seems as if he wanted to get the Democrats to unify again. Sure. Because I think politically what he wants to do, and it might seem like a desperate move, but it, he, he 
he might be in, he's playing as if he's in a politically desperate or difficult situation. He wants the public to think of the Democratic Party as if they are represented by those members, by exactly. the, and the, particularly the policy. Trying to paint the party with that brush. Exactly, exactly. And whether intentionally or not, and it's possibly intention, uh, intentional, he also is what does want to play on these uh, the xenophobic sentiments. I mean, if you look at the actual uh, tweet, the initial tweet that Trump wrote, what's the racist and xenophobic element comes not so much from the actual words, but from who it's directed against. Mm. Very, very simply, he would not have said this you know, to me, yeah. you would not have said, well, if you don't like the United States, go back to Northern Ireland or whatever, right? Um, the actual tweets were basically, when what they said was that if you don't like the, it was sort of a love it or leave it sentiment. And that actually resonates with a lot of people. What he yeah. actually said was that if you don't like the United States, go back to these countries that you came from and try to fix them and then come back, right? So it, it has sort of yeah. a kind he of... he qualified it at the end. Exactly, it's qualified. Yeah. Now, it's still... Yes. stupid and wrong. Yeah. These people have no place to go back to other than the United States. Um, but it is tapping into, on the one hand, that kind of love it or leave it sentiment, which is not something you want a president to engage in, but it's something that's understandable. And what I'm saying here, what the bigger point is that the fact that what President Trump said was deplorable does not necessarily mean that it's going to be ineffective. It will be, to get back to your original question, it will be ineffective if it, instead of it, it simply being an attempt to paint the Democratic Party as being increasingly left wing, it turns into a full on, completely, you know, xenophobic, racist obsession, which seems, you know, which seemed to be on more on display in the campaign style rally last night. Uh, you talked about how this will resonate with some people, and I think most can can see how that would be the case. That being said, what about resonating with the people who are not necessarily the squad, but are kids of parents who immigrated? Or, I mean, they're all, you, you talk about Ireland. My mother immigrated from Scotland after Second sure. World War, um, you, you know, and, and endured the hardship. And, 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 and that, I think that's why this resonates with me is because I remember my mother telling us that kids used to say to her, go back to where you came from, because they made fun right. of the way she dressed and the way in her thick accent. Um, so uh, again, uh, does this just resonate with uh, those that, that don't want these people to, to, to be here or go back to where you came from? But does this also resonate with not only immigrants, but kids of immigrants, uh, right. grandkids of immigrants who evolved? Yeah, I remember these stories of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa having to deal with the same crap. And we're white. Yeah. I, yes, I think that, and I think that's the real danger, the real, the real mistake. Like leaving us, it's not just a moral mistake, but maybe a political mistake as well. What Trump would want is to focus on those elements of policy where the left wing of the Democratic Party is probably out of line with, maybe if not all of the United States, certainly with those states where they're going to need to win in order to win the election. And here I'm thinking mm -hmm. about things like essentially uh, open borders things like race-based reparations. These are the kinds of issues that aren't necessarily going to win the next presidential election for the Democratic Party. But it's tweets of this kind that make it seem as if this is just simply about criticizing these people, not for what they believe. That's part of politics. You criticize people for what they believe, the policies they stand for, but really criticizing people uh, for who they are and where their parents came from. And I think that if if that's the way it's taken up, if it ends up being that that is really the route that Trump wants to go, or if it's something where his followers are are happy to go, then it could I think it is going to be a a, a disaster for the Republican Party. 
Uh, we have seen this since day one. It just appears to have progressively got in, gotten worse. Does he just keep pushing until something snaps? Because you wonder how far he can go and still have this work in his favor. That's, I mean, he's playing with fire on these issues. I would imagine that there is going to be a sort of apology, non-apology within the next week or so. I would imagine that Trump is going to try to redirect this towards policy differences, the kind of policy quest differences between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and make it appear as if this is not simply about dislike of people who don't look like Donald Trump and his family. Uh, and so I think that that would be the smart thing for the president to do. Um, as it's never going to take the form of a genuine apology. It's never going to take the form of a mea culpa for, for President Trump. But it can, it will probably take the form of you didn't understand something along the lines of you didn't understand what I was saying. Um, this, this is something that has already been, this, this interpretation of the tweets has already been put forward by some Republicans in the House, such as Liz Cheney, who said that this is just about policy differences. He was basically just saying we disagree with these, these people who he claims are extreme critics of the United it's States. It's amazing how many people have to constantly decode what the president says. And what does that say right there where, you know, all of a sudden it's almost like, you know, reading a piece of religious text. You put it right. up for everybody and everybody looks and everybody gets something different out of it. You know, right. I mean, well, and, no, that's it, not what he said. He said this. Why? When was the last time we ever sat there and questioned what a leader was saying this way? Well, we never had a we, this is really the first uh, Twitter based presidency. And I think there's the one sort of conspiratorial interpretation, which is that Trump is writing these deliberately vague uh, tweets because they're saying everything to everyone. On the one hand, it's drawing attention to policy differences. On the other hand, it's a dog whistle to racists and xenophobes. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think it is more off the cuff. I think in many cases, these things are not simply well-crafted. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, is, it is interesting. It is certainly unfortunate that you have to, there's, I mean, there's nothing less intellectually interesting than trying to parse you know, hmm. Trump's, Trump's statements. Uh, but he, it's, worked with, it's worked for him thus far. And I do think that it does show an element of, a kind of element of desperation. And I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism from a political perspective. Trump is playing the political game as if he thinks he's in danger of losing. Mm. And that's actually a good position. That's better than overconfidence. Mm. I think that Trump is not overconfident about his electoral chances. And I think that that is why he is not willing to sit back and simply let the Democrats have their spat and resolve their differences. He doesn't want Nancy Pelosi to be the face of the Democratic Party. He wants the more politically radical wing right. yeah. to be the it's face of the Democratic be. Party. Uh, that being said, a lot of people voted for Donald Trump way back when because they were looking for the bull in the china shop. They were tired of Congress people that, that, that read green eggs and ham at filibusters. They wanted stuff done. You know, at the end of the day, at what point do Americans grow tired of fighting with each other and step back and see nothing and, and realize nothing's getting done either? Or is or, or is government getting done? Uh, I mean, that's, that's a kind of a difficult question to, an, to answer. I think that there's still a lot of fear amongst uh, Trump supporters. Perhaps some of it's justified, which is that, uh, you know, they, their, their way of life is going to be in danger if there is a progressive Democrat dominating the national government at all at the House, Senate and the presidency. I think this is the very simple explanation for why so many uh, Christian and evangelical uh, voters support Trump. 
uh, despite the fact that he is uh, not exactly a true religious believer. Uh, so I don't know if I don't know if Americans are simply going to get tired of, of this political conflict and decide to you know return to some period of normalcy. The fact of the matter is that political conflict is pretty normal in the United States. Uh, there are often these kinds of deep divisions, and there's no there's no easy way out of it. Um, I think that, um, but I will say this: uh, Trump, in order to win, Trump needs to prevent the Democratic Party from occupying the political center. Yeah, and that brings that was my next. Qu- that's what that was yeah. my next question because it seems it's either extreme left or extreme right, and the person that 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 taps into that is going to win. I, I think right. both in Canada and in the United States. Uh, right. What do the Democrats have to do to stop from falling into this trap? Uh, how do they handle the squad and then um, uh, electing a new leader as well? It's difficult because there are basically two two different interpretations within the Democratic Party about what is necessary to retain power and to achieve it. So for the left wing of the Democratic Party, there is the belief that we can be a left wing version of Trump, which is to say that if you propose a big radical changes, you will generate a lot of support from new voters, from younger voters. And you have to, you know, really have a a a very progressive agenda. And that is what is going to mobilize people. Uh, I think from the perspective of someone like Nancy Pelosi, she looks at the 2018 midterm elections and she sees, well, we won by having moderate candidates win in some of these highly contested districts, right? So in this small, relatively small number of districts that are actually competitive in congressional elections, it was not the left wing of the Democratic Party that was propelling them to victory. It was more moderate, more centrist candidates. Mm -hmm. And that argument... That's the that argument is never going to end. I mean, there are so many districts in the United States where essentially either Democrats or Republicans are insulated from serious political competition. And I think in some cases it leads people on the left wing of the Democratic Party or the right wing of the Republican Party to misunderstand or to not fully understand what's necessary to win national elections, particularly the presidency. Uh, to win the presidency, you still need to find a way to occupy the political center. And this is why I think so many people misunderstand what happened in 2016. Trump used, you know, the deplorable, you know, motivations of racism and xenophobia, sometimes veiled, sometimes not so veiled. But on a lot of questions, he was tacking towards the political center. And that's something that's important to remember. And I think that's something that those on the progressive left wing of the Democratic Party don't understand. The best example would be something like trade, where Trump exactly. Pretty, I mean, many yeah. many are in support of how he is finally calling China to task on things, but it seems yep. that the politics and all of that gets lost in his buffoonery. Yep. He he's his own worst enemy, it appears. Right. Uh, and I let mean, me ask you this I, question. Let me yeah, ask you this question, ahead. Ryan. When let's let's assume Joe Biden goes on to win the Democratic leadership. Uh, is this all a moot point once it's him and Joe going toe to toe? Um, I, that's because the squad, the squad will be gone. The squad will be gone. They'll be out of the picture, but that line, go back to where you came from. It'll be there. Right. Um, will they be out of the picture? Uh, I'm not sure they will be out of the picture, even if Joe Biden is the nominee, because they will still be, they, they perhaps will be voicing discontent with the direction of the party. Uh, they will still be taking their own public stances. I think that, like it or not, the Democratic Party is going to be stuck with them. And I think that even if Biden is the nominee, Trump will want to make 
the election about Congress. People aren't going to be afraid. Moderate voters in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, they're not going to be afraid of Joe Biden. So Trump is going to try to make them afraid of what Biden means with a Democratic House, a Democratic House that is increasingly running to the left. Ryan Hurl has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. Always fascinating, and uh, enjoy your day. Thank you. No problem. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everyone seems to be using the uh, Face app on Facebook. Uh, use filters to age your face. Uh, I started, I guess it's been around for a couple of years now, um, but seems to certainly be making a, a massive comeback now. And, uh, you know, in a land where everyone wants to always look younger, it's amazing that uh, we're interested in what we look like when we get old. Now, if you're a guy my age, in my 50s, what I'd like to be able to do is take a picture of myself and then do this in the reverse. And make here's a shot of me at 15. And then compare the two. Does it look like me at 15? Because by the time, you know, you figure out whether the aging app's really accurate or not, you might be dead. So it'd be nice to kind of flip the reverse. And then, you know, if it's not, if it's not really close to what you look like when, the, when you were young, then will it really be accurate to when you were old? Although it is frightening to, well, frightening, sort of weird to watch and, and, and see, uh, especially if I had family members uh, sending this to me. And I think, you know, a, a nephew and, oh, my God, you look like your uncle now. Uh, so you look like your parents now. Uh, it's bizarre uh, to see the way this has uh, been, uh, I guess, uh, absorbed by everybody and, uh, and, and now has exploded to, to the extent that it has caused come some concern. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, tech analyst. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. So why do you think this app, first of all, tell us the history of this app. It's been around for a while, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it was introduced in 2017 uh, from a team of Russian developers, and yes, that should worry you. Um, and originally, it was just it was uh, it was basically you took a picture of yourself and you applied a number of filters to it. And the the trick, the thing that separated Face app from other apps that kind of play you know photo booth type apps is that they said that, that it used artificial intelligence, machine learning, to create more realistic filters, more realistic results. Um, and so you know, the app was mildly popular when it was introduced, and then it kind of faded away. And then uh, a few weeks ago, they up, they updated it. They introduced uh, new filters, and the age the aging one is the one that's getting all the attention. And the results are so shocking, like they're so realistic in some cases, uh, that it became a viral sensation. And suddenly, you know, you you have to be living in a cave to not realize that everyone's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, like everyone's social feeds, they're just stuffed with pictures. Everyone's playing with it. Yep. The reason it's become so popular is nobody wants to be left out. Privacy notwithstanding, no one wants to you know, sort of be the one person who says, oh, I, my picture isn't up there. Why has this resonated? Why are we so fascinated to see what we look like when we get old? Well, because especially, in a, especially in, a, in, in a time when, you know, it's all about youth, all about looking younger. Yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I think uh, they probably would have gotten just as much traction if uh, if they had introduced a younger filter, which, of course, is part of the app. But the thing is, is, is you know, we all know what we look like once upon a time. We don't know what we're going to look like in future. Right. Um, and from an artificial intelligence perspective, there's more opportunity for the software to learn by extrapolating forward in time than back. Hmm. Um, and and let's, 
make it clear this is all about data it's all about learning and the more data these developers gain access to the more powerful their software can become the better it is for their business that's what it's all about that's why these apps are free we don't pay in money. We pay in the data that they now have access to. That's exactly what my next question is. This is just another way to get your image, get your information. It's not about, hey, let's find something neat that can be really useful and people will have fun with and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's how can we sort of suck people into doing something so we can retrieve their information. Is that what this is about? It is. And if you read the terms of use or terms of service statement that's attached to this particular app, it's kind of frightening because basically what they're doing is they're saying by downloading this app and installing it, you are giving us, the developers, the development companies, absolute rights to access your photos, to use them in any way we see fit, to share them with our partners. You're essentially giving away the store. And, you know, before I, I kind of rage on FaceApp, and these are onerous terms, Let's make it abundantly clear. The average person has a few dozen apps on their phone. One of those apps has a terms of use or a terms of service statement that is attached to it that we were supposed to read when we first installed it but didn't because we were just too busy to to sort of get it installed. And most of those terms of service statements have similar claims and similar, like they, they stretch it, they push it, they leave us with no legal recourse. We basically open up Pandora's box when it comes to privacy and confidentiality, and we hand it on over to these developers, sight unseen. So FaceApp is one of the more egregious of the ones that I've seen, but it's hardly the only one. And in fact, we've been doing this for years. Again, uh, many were concerned, as you said at the beginning of all this, we should be concerned because this information is being sent to Russian developers who who, who mm-hmm. developed this app. Uh, that being said, I've heard many say, well, as you just said, well, I've got six or seven of these different apps anyway, and they're all doing the same thing. What difference does it make? Why is this one different? Well, this one, I think it's because of where it comes from, Russia, uh, and also I think because Uh, Most apps don't go viral in this way, and most of them don't sort of create this global, you know, first sensation and then second kind of like a retrograde wave of regret. Oh, my God, I can't believe I did that because now I've exposed myself to something bad. And so I think that the positive takeaway here, Scott, is that, you know, I think this has caused all of us to have a really good discussion about what we're getting into when we decide to download any kind of free app. And I think so, it's giving us pause. Does that mean, Carmi, that more of us will be reading those terms before I we hit so. accept? I, 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 you know, I hope so, but I'm not optimistic because you know I, I look at those terms and most of them are like multiple pages long. They're written in incredibly difficult to follow legalese. And let's face it, I'm sitting there on my phone, I'm waiting for you know my next meeting to start or my bus to get there, and uh, I don't have the time to sift through all of this legalese. I just want to install the app and get it working. So. Um, you know, I'm hopeful, but no, I don't think human nature is going to change overnight. I think that the furor over FaceApp is going to flare for a little bit, then it'll die off. And then in a couple of months, there will be another uh, viral thing going on, some new app that also violates our privacy. But as always, we're going to willingly hand it over because, you know, in the age of, 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 of mobility and social media, convenience trumps everything else. Uh, w- w- the fact that it is a Russian app, w- why should we be concerned about that? Why should experts be concerned? Incredibly worrisome because Russia is one of the so-called big four hacking nations. So Russia, North Korea, China, and Iran. And these are the countries that uh, are largely responsible for sort of as, as uh, launching pads for global hacking initiatives. 
in many cases, their state sponsor the governments of these countries actually pay hackers to do their bidding online. Uh, and we've seen ample evidence of Russian interference, digital interference in the U.S. 2016 election. And I think we would have to uh, be naive to think that that's not going to happen next year as well or that it isn't happening now. So the fact that it's that, that connection to Russia, a country that we already know is problematic from a privacy perspective, is troubling and it's worrisome. And it kind of even if they weren't from Russia, I think we would worry now that they are, that we know they are, we worry even more. So uh, how concerned are you or other experts about this, considering, you know, this is a very deep problem now because many don't read those those uh, fine lines, those details that they agree to. How concerned are users about this? Well, users, unfortunately, aren't. I think most yeah. of them, are, they're so busy sharing photos with friends that they just don't really pay attention to the privacy implications. We should be worried more than we are because right now, their photos, not just the photos that they took uh, in FaceApp, but all of the photos that are on their phone, that are connectable from their phone, have now been exposed. Uh, in many cases, have probably been downloaded onto those Russian servers, and Lord knows what's being done with them. Are they being used to train other AI algorithms to conduct identity theft attacks? It's entirely possible. Once our personal data, and there's nothing more personal than your photo, once it gets out there um, and is used for this purpose, uh, then your overall level of security goes down. So we're probably not worried because we're still having fun with the app. But, you know, really, uh, this is a pretty grave development. And it only means that, you know, you were, we're, we're less secure today than we were yesterday. Uh, government concerned about this. How concerned is government, especially in regard to the election meddling issues? Well, I mean, they certainly are. I mean, here in Canada, you know, it, we've seen the Canadian government issue warnings about digital activities in the run-up to the federal election. We've seen the parties in the U.S. Uh, issue edicts to their candidates about what they can and cannot do online. They've made it very clear, do not download or use FaceApp. And so we're starting to see some recognition from our legislators, but it's the case of too little, too late. You know, the technology has been racing so far ahead so quickly uh, of the legislative landscape, of the laws that would govern appropriate use, that we just don't have the right laws in place to rein this in. And every time a new threat comes along, uh, they try to use laws that were introduced long before smartphones were even a thing, hmm. before we even knew about apps, and it just doesn't work that way. So we're still basically chasing our tails, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Is the genie out of the bottle on this? Is it too late to, to, to backtrack on this, especially not only with this app, but considering that other apps allow the same sort of intrusion? I think to a certain extent, Scott, we're never going to go back to the way it was. I yeah. think we're always going to be exposed to a certain degree of risk. But it doesn't mean that we should fold up our tents and go home. It doesn't mean that we should just accept our fate and say, okay, well, that's it. We're all, you know, we've lost all of our online security, so we may as well just give up. Um, we still have a ways to go. We can still improve the way we as individuals behave. We can be a little bit more uh, in charge of our digital destiny, so to speak. Uh, we can slow things down. We can question. Uh, we can delete apps that uh, we're not using on our phone. We cannot install them in the first place. We can choose to not participate in the latest viral meme because it exposes us. We can choose to not overshare on social media or participate in those ridiculous surveys that deliberately expose our most sensitive information to hackers who then scavenge it and use it against us. So I think there's lots of room for improvement, but like everything online, it's really up to us to decide if we want to be part of the solution. We have to make some changes in the way we behave. And uh, as we've seen over the last few years, and you and I have spoken about many times, 
human behavior doesn't really change uh, all that mm. much. And as, unfortunately, it seems to be getting worse with time, not better. Do we have an install, install everything behavior? Oh, yeah, look at that, install it, We just <laughs> where we don't even look. We don't yep. even bother checking. Oh, well, of course, it's here. Why wouldn't we use it? It's There it is. It's safe. Exactly. You know, we, we assume that because it's in the Apple App Store, the Google Play, Play Store, that, uh, that it's safe. We assume that if it's installable on our phones or on our computers or other devices, tablets, that it's perfectly fine. We just don't care. We don't, you know, when we, go, when we send our kids out, you know, to go to the movies downtown, for example, we street-proof them. We teach them not to talk to strangers. Yeah. We teach them to know to call us if something happens, to always go with a buddy, all that stuff. But we don't digitally street truth either them or ourselves. We, we recognize the dangers on a downtown street. We don't recognize the dangers in the digital space on our phones. It seems so innocuous to us, but we need to recognize it's just that thing in our pocket is just as dangerous as that person behind us in the alley at 8 o'clock at night. It's like you're walking around with a target on your chest and you don't even know it. Exactly. And the behaviors that you're engaged in make that target bigger, brighter, uh, easier for a hacker to find. Are there certain apps, things that you won't use, you won't go near? Well, certainly something like FaceApp, I won't touch. Uh, I will not do those uh, surveys and any kind of apps or games that sit on top of social media, notably Facebook. Um, So whenever there's any automation in Facebook, just say no. Um, I don't overshare. Uh, so, for example, when I see something on a social media platform, um, I don't uh, kind of share it with the people who follow me simply because that adds another means of tracking my activity. Um, and I'm also careful about the things that I like in social media because that also gives data to hackers. Hmm. Uh, the, Cam- the Cambridge Analytica case showed very clearly that your online activities can be used to create even something as innocuous as liking something can be used to create a very detailed profile of you that can be used against you. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of an undersharer and an under-activity person when it comes to social media, and I think that's really where the battle starts for most of us. That doesn't, doesn't that fly in the face of what social media is all about? It's like, just jump in, here we go. It absolutely does. Uh, but at the same time, I think we need to recognize that we have, in the, the 10, 15 years or so that most of us have been using social media, we have basically been like kids at the playground with no parental supervision. Exactly, yeah. We've, yeah. we've kind of like, we've run absolutely roughshod, no limitations. We don't really care about the consequences. We just, this is so cool. Let's just go nuts. Let's eat all the candy in the candy store. Um, exactly. Now, yeah, we're starting to get a tummy ache. Uh, and I think we need to start recognizing that you can't eat all candy all the time. And maybe unlimited social media isn't really the way we should go. We should dial it back a bit. Uh, does this change anything? You said earlier that perhaps people may read those terms and, and agreement and such a little bit more closely. Um, I for, yeah, I think for some of us it will. I think for some of us it's going to start that conversation. I think, I think uh, you know, I've been having a few conversations with people over the last few days as this particular story has raged. And they're starting to say, you know, Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the, the thing that it's going to take to make me you know, be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more careful uh, when I go online, when I participate in these things. Maybe I'm not going to download the things. Maybe it'll be okay if I get left out of the meme of the, the virality with all my friends. Um, you know, the, the risk just isn't worth it anymore. Should there be something that says, hey, be careful about this one. It's a Russian app. It's this, it's that, it's blah, blah, blah. Um, or does that sort of go against everything the Internet's all about? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, nobody wants to put in like a break, an, an automatic break on their app or on their operating system or on their hardware. Um, you know, Apple sells devices and Google sells devices, uh, Toshiba, Samsung, you name it. They all sell devices based on their ease of use, you know, getting out there, doing cool stuff and not being limited, expanding your possibilities. 
Um, you don't sell them by saying, hey, you know, we're going we're to make it so that you can barely get anything done because those nag screens are going to stop you. Uh, you know, a little over a decade ago, I remember when Windows Vista was introduced in 2006, and it had nag screens on everything. Are you sure you want to do that? Really? That's dangerous. Mm. And uh, the product was rightfully crucified right from the start because it didn't let people be free. When they go online, they want to be free. And uh, if you introduce a product like that today, it ain't going to sell very many, very many copies. What do you say, Carmi, to people who've already plugged into this and uh, shared it all? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the damage is done, so you're not going back from it. But you know, it's not like you're going to get hacked tomorrow. Yeah. You just increase the possibility that that might happen in future. So your best course of action at this point is delete the app um, and and any connections to it, and also go through all the other apps that you have on your phone. And if you're not using them delete them as well, close off accounts that are dormant, uh, because that is a, a, a huge source of risk for most people. Um, it isn't going to eliminate the, re- the, the threat or the risk, but it certainly will dial it back a little bit, and you will be that much safer because of it. Uh, what about Facebook on all of this, social media in general? Well, I mean, the risks that apply to Face app also apply to Facebook. And yeah. So, you know, the Facebook is kind of heaving a huge sigh of relief because everyone is looking toward Face app this week, and they're not really talking about them, which... But, but this reality, would apply to any social media, would it not? Exactly. Uh, it applies to Facebook, it applies to Twitter, it applies to Instagram, uh, Snapchat, WhatsApp, you name it. Any platform that you use, these same behaviors apply across the board. Um, you know, it's FaceApp's turn this week, but let's not fool ourselves. It applies to every single thing that we use when we go online. And uh, what we're learning around FaceApp should be applied to all of the other tools and apps and services that we use, too. Will it take some sort of major hack before people realize this? I mean, a lot of people are, well, oh, well, you know, gee whiz, there's so, I'm so, I'm so, this is so interwoven into my life anyway. It's already there. There's not much I can do about it. Is that, yeah, is, we, that a, is that a poor attitude to have here? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, there isn't really much of another attitude to have. You know, it, it, the, the truth is it is interwoven into our lives. And the truth is many of us, myself included, use apps like Facebook in a central manner. In other words, I couldn't manage my professional life if I didn't use Facebook the way I use it. So, you know, on, on the one hand, no, there, there is no going back for most of us. But on the other hand, there is nothing that says that we can't smarten up a little bit and mm. find a better sense of balance and be a little bit more thoughtful. And up until now, I think most of us haven't been thoughtful enough. So it's, it's, it's not a matter of unplugging and going and living in a cave. That's just not feasible. But certainly being a little bit smarter when we pick up our smartphones, I think that's feasible and reasonable. Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Carmi commenting on uh, the aging face app. And, uh, boy, it's flying around everywhere. It's You see your friends, your relatives, everyone's doing it. And Carmi is with any social media. Uh, be very cautious about what you do. And if you can, take the time to read that really, really fine print. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.